Section 15 of the Journal of Lewis and Clark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Journal of Lewis and Clark by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Chapter 13. The two subjoined delineations of the two tribes of Indians who inhabit the country on this side of the Rocky Mountains is a summary from the pen of Mackenzie. The Nista now are of a moderate stature, well proportioned, and of great activity. Examples of deformity are seldom to be seen among them. Their complexion is of a copper color and their hair black, which is common to all the natives of North America. It is cut in various forms according to the fancy of the several tribes, and by some is left in the long, lank flow of nature. Their eyes are black, keen, and penetrating. Their countenance open and agreeable, and it is a principal object of their vanity to give every possible decoration to their persons. A material article in their toilets is vermilion, which they contrast with their natives blue, white, and brown earths, to which charcoal is frequently added. Their dress is at once simple and commodious. It consists of tight leggings reaching near the hip, a strip of cloth or leather called a seine about a foot wide and five feet long whose ends are drawn inwards and hang behind and before over a belt tied round the waist for that purpose, a close vest or shirting reaching down the former garment and tinctured with a broad strip of parchment fastened with thongs behind and a cap for the head, consisting of a piece of fur or small skin, with the brush of the animal as a suspended ornament. A kind of robe is occasionally thrown over the whole of the dress and serves both night and day. These articles, with the addition of shoes and mittens, constitute the variety of their apparel. The materials vary according to the season, and consists of dressed moose skin, beaver prepared with the fur, or European woolens. The leather is neatly painted and fancifully worked in some parts with porcupine quills and moose deer hair. The shirts and leggings are also adorned with fringe and tassels, nor are the shoes and mittens without somewhat of appropriate decoration and worked with a considerable degree of skill and taste. These habiliments are put on, however, as fancy or convenience suggests and they will sometimes proceed to the chase in the severest frost, covered only with the slightest of them. Their headdresses are composed of feathers of the swan, the eagle, and other birds. The teeth, horns, and claws of different animals are also the occasional ornaments of the head and neck. Their hair, however arranged, is always besmeared with grease. The making of every article of dress is a female occupation and the women, though by no means inattentive to the decoration of their own persons, appear to have a still greater degree of pride in attending to the appearances of the men, whose faces are painted with more care than those of the women. The female dress is formed of the same materials as those of the other sex, but of a different make and arrangement. Their shoes are commonly plain, and their leggings gartered beneath the knees. The coat, or body covering, falls down to the middle of the leg, and is fastened over the shoulders with cords, a flap or cape turning down about eight inches both before and behind, and agreeably ornamented with quill work and fringe. The bottom is also fringed, and fancifully painted as high as the knee.
as it is very loose, it is enclosed round the waist with a stiff belt, decorated with tassels, and fastened behind. The arms are covered to the wrist with detached sleeves, which are sewed as far as the bend of the arm. From thence they are drawn up to the neck, and the corners of them fall down behind as low as the waist. The cap, when they wear one, consists of a certain quality of leather or cloth, sewed at one end, by which means it is kept on the head, and, hanging down the back, is fastened to the belt, as well as under the chin. The upper garment is a robe like that worn by the men. Their hair is divided on the crown, and tied behind, or sometimes fastened in large knots over the ears. They are fond of European articles, and prefer them to their own native commodities. Their ornaments consist, in common with all other savages, in bracelets, rings, and similar baubles. Some of the women tattoo three perpendicular lines, which are sometimes double, one from the center of the chin to that of the upper lip, and one parallel on either side of the corner of the mouth. Of all the nations which I have seen on this continent, the Kistanau women are the most comely. These people are naturally mild and affable, as well as just in their dealings, not only among themselves, but with strangers. They have been called thieves, but when that vice can with justice be attributed to them, it may be traced to their connection with the civilized people, who come into their country to traffic. They are also generous and hospitable, and good-natured in the extreme, except when their nature is perverted by the inflammatory influence of spiritous liquors. To their children they are indulgent to a fault. The father, though he assumes no command over them, is ever anxious to instruct them in all the preparatory qualifications for war and hunting, while the mother is equally attentive to her daughters in teaching them everything that is considered as necessary to their character and situation. It does not appear that the husband makes any distinction between the children of his wife, though they may be the offspring of different fathers. Illegitimacy is only attached to those who are born before their mothers have cohabited with any man by the title of husband. When a man loses his wife, it is considered as a duty to marry her sister, if she has one. Or he may, if he pleases, have them both at the same time. It will appear, from the fatal consequence I have repeatedly imputed to the use of spiritous liquors, that I more particularly considered these people as having been, morally speaking, great sufferers from their communication with the subjects of civilized nations. At the same time they were not in a state of nature without their vices, and some of them of a kind which are the most abhorrent to cultivated and reflecting man. I shall only observe that incest and bestiality are among them. When a young man marries, he immediately goes to live with the father and mother of his wife, who treat him nevertheless as a perfect stranger until after the birth of his first child. He then attaches himself more to them than to his own parents, and his wife no longer gives him any other denomination than that of the father of her child. The profession of the men in war and hunting, and the more active scene of their duty, is the field of battle and the chase in the woods. They also spear fish, but the management of the nets is left to the women. The females of this nation are in the same subordinate state with those of all other savage tribes. 
but the severity of their labor is much diminished by their situation on the banks of lakes and rivers where they employ canoes in the winter when the waters are frozen they make their journeys which are never of any great length with sledges drawn by dogs they are at the same time subject to every kind of domestic drudgery they dress the leather make the clothes and shoes weave the nets collect wool erect the tents fetch water and perform every culinary service so that when the duties of maternal care are added it will appear that the life of these women is an uninterrupted succession of toil and pain this indeed is the sense they entertain of their own situation and under the influence of that sentiment they are sometimes known to destroy their female children to save them from the miseries which they themselves have suffered they also have a ready way by the use of certain simplets of procuring abortions which they sometimes practice from their hatred of the father or to save themselves the trouble which children occasion and as i have been credibly informed this unnatural act is repeated without any injury to the health of the women who perpetrate it the funeral rites begin like all other solemn ceremonials with smoking and are concluded by a feast the body is dressed in the best habiliments possessed by the deceased or his relations and is then deposited in a grave lined with branches some domestic utensils are placed on it and a kind of canopy erected over it during this ceremony great lamentations are made and if the departed person is very much regretted the near relations cut off their hair pierce the fleshy part of their thighs and arms with arrows knives etc and blacken their face with charcoal if they have distinguished themselves in war they are sometimes on a kind of scaffolding and i have been informed that women in the east have been known to sacrifice themselves to the manes of their husbands the whole of the property belonging to the departed person is destroyed and the relations take in exchange for the wearing apparel any rags that will cover their nakedness the feast bestowed on the occasion which is or at least used to be repeated annually is accompanied with eulogiums of the deceased and without any acts of ferocity on the tomb is carved or painted the symbols of his tribe which are taken from the different animals of the country they have frequently feasts and particular circumstances never fail to produce them such as tedious illness long fasting etc on these occasions it is usual for the person who means to give the entertainment to announce his design on a certain day of opening the medicine bag and smoking out his sacred stem this declaration is considered as a sacred vow that cannot be broken there are also stated periods such as the spring and autumn when they engage in very long and solemn ceremonies on these occasions dogs are offered as sacrifices and those who are very fat and milk white are preferred they also make large offerings of their property whatever it may be the scene of these ceremonies is in an open enclosure on the bank of a river or lake and in the most conspicuous situation in order that such as are passing along or traveling may be induced to make their offerings there is also a particular custom among them that on these occasions if any of the tribe or even a stranger should be passing by and be in real want of anything that is displayed as an offering he has a right to take it so that he replaces it with some article he can spare 
though it be of far inferior value. But to take or touch anything wantonly is considered as a sacrilegious act, and highly insulting to the great master of life, to use their own expression, who is the sacred object of their devotion. The scene of private sacrifice is the lodge of the person who performs it, which is prepared for that purpose by removing everything out of it and spreading green branches in every part. The fire and ashes are also taken away. A new hearth is made of fresh earth and another fire is lighted. The owner of the dwelling remains alone in it, and he begins the ceremony by spreading a piece of new cloth or a well-dressed moose skin neatly painted on which he opens his medicine bag and exposes its contents, consisting of various articles. The principal of them is a kind of household god, which is a small carved image about eight inches long. Its first covering is of down, over which a piece of birch bark is closely tied, and the whole is enveloped in several folds of red and blue cloth. This little figure is an object of the most pious regard. The next article is his war cap, which is decorated with the feathers and plumes of scarce birds, beavers, and eagles' claws, etc. There is also suspended from it a quill or feather for every enemy whom the owner of it has slain in battle. The remaining contents of the bag are a piece of Brazil tobacco, several roots and simples, which are in great estimation for the medicinal qualities, and a pipe. These articles being all exposed, and the stem resting upon two forks as it must not touch the ground, the master of the lodge sends for the person he most esteems, who sits down opposite to him. The pipe is then filled and fixed to the stem. A pair of wooden pincers is provided to put the fire in the pipe, and a double-pointed pin to empty it of the remnant of tobacco which is not consumed. This arrangement being made, the men assemble, and sometimes the women are allowed to be humble spectators, while the most religious awe and solemnity pervade the whole. The Michinawais, or assistant, takes up the pipe, lights it, and presents it to the officiating person, who receives it standing and holds it between both hands. He then turns himself to the east and draws a few whiffs, which he blows to that point. The same ceremony he observes to the other three quarters, with his eyes directed upwards during the whole of it. He holds the stem about the middle between the three first fingers of both hands, and raising them upon a line with his forehead, he swings it three times round from the east, with the sun, when, after pointing and balancing it in various directions, he reposes it on the forks. He then makes a speech to explain the design of their being called together, which concludes with an acknowledgment of past mercies and a prayer for the continuance of them from the Master of Life. He then sits down, and the whole company declare their approbation and thanks by uttering the word HO with an emphatic prolongation of the last letter. The Michinawais then takes up the pipe and holds it to the mouth of the officiating person, who, after smoking three whiffs out of it, utters a short prayer, and then goes around with it, taking his course from east to west to every person present, who individually says something to him on the occasion. And thus the pipe is generally smoked out, when after turning it three or four times round his head, he drops it downwards and replaces it in its original situation. He then thanks the company for their attendance, and wishes them, as well as the whole tribe, health and long life. These smoking rites precede every matter of great importance, 
with more or less ceremony, but always with equal solemnity. The utility of them will appear from the following relation. If a chief is anxious to know the disposition of his people towards him, or he wishes to settle any difference between them, he announces his intention of opening his medicine bag and smoking in his sacred stem. And no man who entertains a grudge against any of the party thus assembled can smoke with the sacred stem, as that ceremony dissipates all differences and is never violated. No one can avoid attending on these occasions. But a person may attend and be excused from assisting at the ceremonies by acknowledging that he has not undergone the necessary purification. The having cohabited with his wife, or any other woman, within twenty-four hours preceding the ceremony renders him unclean, and consequently disqualifies him from performing any part of it. If a contract is entered into and solemnized by the ceremony of smoking, it never fails of being faithfully fulfilled. If a person, previous to his going on a journey, leaves the sacred stem as a pledge of his return, no consideration whatever will prevent him from executing his engagement. It is, however, to be lamented that of late there is a relaxation of the duties originally attached to the festivals. The chief, when he proposes to make a feast, sends quills or small pieces of wood as tokens of invitation to such as he wishes to partake of it. At the appointed time, the guests arrive, each bringing a dish or platter and a knife, and take their seats on each side of the chief, who receives them sitting according to their respective ages. The pipe is then lighted, and he makes an equal division of everything that is provided. While the company are enjoying their meal, the chief sings and accompanies his song with the tambourine or shishiquai or rattle. The guest who has first eaten his portion is considered as the most distinguished person. If there should be any who cannot finish the whole of their mess, they endeavor to prevail on some of their friends to eat it for them, who are rewarded for their assistance with ammunition and tobacco. It is proper also to remark that at these feasts a small quantity of meat offering is sacrificed before they begin to eat by throwing it into the fire or on the earth. These feasts differ according to circumstances. Sometimes each man's allowance is no more than he can dispatch in a couple of hours. At other times, the quantity is sufficient to supply each of them with food for a week, though it must be devoured in a day. On these occasions, it is very difficult to procure substitutes, and the whole must be eaten whatever time it may require. At some of these entertainments, there is a more rational argument, when the guests are allowed to carry home with them the superfluous part of their portions. Great care is always taken that the bones may be burned, as it would be considered a profanation were the dogs permitted to touch them. The public feasts are conducted in the same manner, but with some additional ceremony. Several chiefs officiate at them, and procure the necessary provisions, as well as prepare a proper place of reception for the numerous company. Here the guests discourse upon public topics, repeat the heroic deeds of their forefathers, and excite the rising generation to follow their example. The entertainments on these occasions consists of dried meats, as it would not be practicable to dress a sufficient quantity of fresh meat for such a large assembly though the women and children are excluded. Similar feasts used to be made at funerals and annually in honor of the dead, but they have been for some time growing into disuse, and I have never had an opportunity of being present at any of them.
The women, who are forbidden to enter the places sacred to these festivals, dance and sing around them, and sometimes beat time to the music within them, which forms an agreeable contrast. With respect to their divisions of time, they compute the length of journeys by the number of nights passed in performing them, and they divide the year by their own succession of moons. In this calculation, however, they are not altogether correct, as they cannot account for odd days. The names which they give to the moons are descriptive of the several seasons, and as follows. May, frog moon. June, the moon in which birds begin to lay their eggs. July, the moon when birds cast their feathers. August, the moon when the young birds begin to fly. September, the moon when the moose deer cast their horns. October, the rotting moon. November, hoarfrost moon. December, whirlwind moon. January, extreme cold moon. February, big moon, some say old moon. March, eagle moon. April, goose moon. These people know the medicinal virtues of many herbs and simples, and apply the roots of plants and the bark of trees with success. But the conjurers who monopolize the medicinal science find it necessary to blend mystery with their art and do not communicate their knowledge. Their materia medica they administer in the form of purges and clysters, but the remedies and surgical operations are supposed to derive much of their effect from magic and incantation. When a blister rises in the foot from the frost, the chafing of the shoe, etc., they immediately open it and apply the heated blade of a knife to the part, which, painful as it may be, is found to be efficacious. A sharp flint serves them as a lancet for letting blood, as well as for sacrification in bruises and swelling. For sprains, the dung of an animal just killed is considered as the best remedy. They are very fond of European medicines, though they are ignorant of their application, and those articles form an inconsiderable part of their European traffic with them. Among their various superstitions, they believe the vapor which is seen to hover over moist and swampy places is the spirit of some person lately dead. They also fancy another spirit, which appears in the shape of a man, upon the trees near the lodge of a person deceased, whose property has not been interred with him. He is represented as bearing a gun in his hand, and it is believed he does not return to his rest until the property that has been withheld from the grave has been sacrificed to it. End of section 15